Spectre Cinema Club episode 163. Becca on Letterboxd gives Rope 4 out of 5 stars saying, Hot tip, when you're deciding which one of your friends to kill so you can have a murderous dinner party, don't kill the guy who's never late to parties. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Spectre Cinema Club, a podcast obsessed with the horror movie subgenres. I'm your host, Garrett McDowell, sitting across from me. As always, my trusty sidekick, it's Devon Taylor. How you doing, buddy? Hello, hello. I'm ready to uh, be gay and do crimes. That's what I'm ready to do for today. Uh, as we close out our month on Hitchcock, uh, doing uh, the earliest, we kind of did a weird year bouncing around thing. Uh, yeah, we started well, I- we started a little bit in, in the earlier side, then we went forward a few years. Now we're going back. Which is which is really what you have to do, you know. You got to start broad and then get super hyper specific. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or not, but that's our justification, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, we mentioned it a couple weeks ago that you know this movie uh, is another kind of one of distillations of you know kind of his yeah. Hitchcock's uh, style, especially for the time. So uh, definitely excited uh, to get into it. Now we have another special guest for this week's episode. We sure do. Uh, we had to bring in the big guns to talk about Alfred Hitchcock, uh, somebody who is a certified bona fide expert. Uh, so we're bringing in Miss Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies, as well as the author of The Female Gaze, Girls on Film, and Backwards in Heels. Hello, hello, Alicia. Glad to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me on. I always love to talk about Hitch. Absolutely. Oh, I know you are uh, a specialty and uh, and crazy because you have you know a, a background in both me and Garrett's uh, movie upbringing uh backstories um because i i know i know i came out uh it was like before it was about a year and a half before i had actually moved to la uh i came out and uh, you took me out to lunch and then we got to uh i got to watch you in person uh do some uh, uh movie fights which was super fun i know uh you got to do uh kind of similar uh for garrett as well which is which is really cool i've always appreciated alicia that uh you know you see the uh, the the film fans coming up and you know you always you always got spot underneath your wing for for another one yeah, yeah i mean look at you guys now <laughs> doing this you know it's, it's so fun to always meet you know fellow film nerds and i got a lot of help as i was coming up the ranks so i'm always willing to help out whenever i can i mean just to show people what it's like and and what i do i think is really interesting so it's nice to see you both and both doing so well. Yes, thank you for uh, joining us today. This is uh, really exciting. I knew when we were like kind of kicking around the theme for this month, I was like, we got to get Alicia on. You know, we <laughs> you just have to. And uh, yeah, your uh, work over there on Turner Classic Movies been uh, killing it there as always. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got uh, go- uh, going on over at TCM? Yeah, I mean, on TCM, you can see me present the films on Sundays during the day and Tuesdays at night. I also get to host the TCM Imports series, which is our foreign film series on very late at night on Sunday nights. And that's one of my favorite things to do to explore sort of the wider world of cinema outside of the Hollywood gates. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, anytime I get a chance to talk about Alfred Hitchcock, who was the first director I was ever aware of, the first person that started to give me the idea of what a director was and what they did. You know, I'm always happy to do yeah. that. So as soon as you said you had a Hitchcock 
theme going on. Yeah. I wanted to join, and, and I'm especially happy we get to talk about this film, which is one of his most underrated. Yeah, when I had uh, like proposed this this theme to you and kind of let you pick not all of the movies, because obviously this is the last one we're talking about this month, but uh, you went Rope. Uh, that was the direction that you went uh, towards. Was there a reason that you picked Rope? Why was that the one that you wanted to talk about this month? I think because it's the one that people don't talk about very often, but it is a very interesting film for many reasons, and one of which being Hitchcock's uh, innovation, trying different things with his camera, also the way that he it was so skilled at making the audience complicit in what was happening on screen or feeling like you're part of it because of what you've seen. And that was something that intrigued me about Hitchcock from the very beginning, the first film, I remember seeing of his was Rear Window and I remember my dad pulling me out of bed at night to sit me down to explain to me who Hitchcock was and also why he was how he was using the camera to make you feel like a voyeur in that film just like Jimmy Stewart's character was and so I think Rope he does that very successfully and um, it's a film that I hope more people get to discover I remember finding it in my video store back in the day in Canberra, Australia. You know, I'd seen Rear Window, North by Northwest, Psycho, and I wanted to explore more. And I came across Rope, which was very lucky because it was a film that it wasn't widely available at video stores back in the day. And um, I had a great time watching this film, which I don't know what that says about me, but there you go. I'm hoping that, you know, I mean, obviously we kind of love seeing, um, you know, especially in the digital age, the Gen Z kids kind of discovering movies from like, you know, times past and stuff. And uh, and I- I'm feeling like this one's going to be on the verge because as soon as people realize how gay this movie is, I think the Gen <laughs> yeah. Z kids are going to be all over it. I feel like that's going to be the the part that uh, kind of brings them in and that's well, definitely hook them in. That's how you hook in Gen Z. Hey, like, that's we've how got you... gays. We've got the gays. We, we got them. <laughs> exactly. We got them in spades. So, so I, I have a feeling that will maybe uh, kind of bring people in more. Uh, you know, we'll see if uh, we talk about this a little bit more around Pride time. Um, but yeah, I've always uh, uh, found it interesting, and I, I hope that it does come around that way. Um, aside from uh, Hitchcock, Alicia, what are some of your favorite subgenres in horror? Mm, in horror. Um, well, if if you can count sci-fi as being horror, one thing that I love is the 1950s sci-fi movies, you know, that time when there was the fear of the atomic bomb. So you had all those kind of big creatures coming to Earth and destroying things like them or the blob. Um, but I also lo- like the fact that this was during the Cold War where there was a real fear of the other and you see that in um uh invasion of the body snatchers for example i mean that's one of my favorite films that i have to watch every halloween but actually when it comes to horror horror i'm a i'm a real scaredy cat <laughs> I, growing up i used to watch horror films and then immediately throw up afterwards because i was so scared oh. <laughs> even when i watched scream for the first time which is it's a funny film Uh, But it was so terrifying to me that I watched it and then I threw up. Um, I did that with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, all of those movies just, I always feel like once I see a horror film, it's going to happen to me in real life. Oh, no. (laughs) You know, it's like the the ring or something. I'm going to watch this movie and then it's just going to happen. So I, I like horror, but I... I'm scared of the real, yeah. real horror. Well, I think monster movies as well. I love. I find that fascinating that, 
you kind of because I <laughs> yeah. mean maybe with the with the sci-fi horror leaning into it because like even when you have like sci-fi horror even if there's things that are scary there's still like kind of a, an optimism to to certain mm-hmm. sci-fi films in a way like because it's you know there's horrors but it's usually because they're trying to do something good or like they mm-hmm. you know might discover something out of it so like there's even even at its like scariest there's always like kind of like a slight glimmer of optimism in sci-fi horror yeah i agree and oh sorry i was just gonna say i think i also like with sci-fi that it and i'm sure this is true of most horror as well that it actually talks about what's happening in the world at that time like it's often about something bigger than just the story that it's showing and you can read so much into it but it is interesting i don't know why i have always been so scared of horror films because it doesn't really make sense for someone who knows all about the movie making aspect you think i would be able to (laughs) turn my brain off from believing it's real knowing everything that goes into making a movie but still somehow it scares me i was just about to say the same thing yeah the that particular corner of uh sci-fi in the 1950s being very much so about so many things like just like the movie that we're talking about today it was kind of the fear of the other you know fear Mm -hmm. of uh different people with different lifestyles whether it be you know uh like kind of this uh intermingling of 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 race or people with uh different you know sexual preferences obviously this film we're going to talk about today i wouldn't even call it subtext it's mostly just the text of the movie but whether it's that or you know the red scare and you know communism and all of these things that you know don't let anybody fool you movies have been talking about this stuff for a long time it's not just a 24 that talks about quote unquote like Mm -hmm. the heavy stuff or the real stuff it's it's been happening for you know ever (laughs) exactly yeah and now i feel like your your 50s movies all tie into you know your your tcm background and (laughs) and uh the last thing i'll last thing i'll say before we hop into the movie today is um at my previous bar um our what our bosses they had it mandated that on at least one tv we had to keep tcm on um like no matter what games were on no matter what like there's they always wanted one tv in the corner with tcm on and um and one of my uh regulars uh you were his favorite host he would i remember we were watching it one day and he goes he's like ah, i always love this redhead gal she, he's like no shade to the other co-host but she's my favorite and i was like oh yeah i know her he's like no way and i was like yeah yeah he's like oh my god i love listening to her accent it's phenomenal so uh so so shout out to tim uh who sometimes listens to the show so if you're listening to this Hi, one tim. tim uh this one's for you buddy so uh let's go thank ahead thank you so much thanks for uh not requesting it the channel be turned to some sport or something. Oh, Tim, Tim would have rioted. Tim would have rioted if, if we you, had to Tim. change the TCM channel. So this <laughs> one's for you, buddy. Let's go ahead and hop into the movie for today's episode. Hulk! Rope, released September 25th, 1948, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. This was uh, written by author Lorenz, who is a... a pl- who is a prolific playwright, but also a Oscar-nominated screenwriter. Um, we have cinematography done by Joseph A. Valentin and William V. Skull. And we have the score done by David Butolf, Francis Polenk, and Leo F. Forbstein with some uncredited musical direction. Uh, edited by William H. Ziegler, uh, who was mentioned last week when we were talking Strangers on a Train. Uh, this was earlier in Hitchcock's career, so he hadn't uh, put together the crew quite yet uh the the crew of the ones that uh, kind of worked on his 50s and 60s films uh so we have some different names in the in the mix in there 
Uh, box office, it was kind of hard to uh, get a, a, a pin down a number for this one. Um, somewhere between 2.2 and 2.7 million between its initial release and re-releases on a, um, a speculated 1.5 to 2, $2 million budget. Um, Alicia, you are a, a Rotten Tomatoes uh, critic, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, what do you think the percentage is sitting at for Rope on 54 Reviews? Oh, I would say it's it's going to be one of those films on Rotten Tomatoes that doesn't have many reviews, but they're all positive. So I would say it would be like 96%. Ooh, you're very Something close. High. 93%. Yeah, okay, yeah you, 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 were, you had the right logic going. It was, yeah, low reviews, but all, all pretty positive for the most part. Uh, Garrett, what do you think uh, this is sitting at over on Letterboxd? You know, like I said earlier, if there's one thing that Gen Z loves, it's the gays. And this movie is uh, chock full of them. So I think this is going to be one of Hitch's more positively reviewed films. So I'm going to say it's at like a 3.9. Uh, pretty close. Uh, you are. It's a 4.1. Yeah, Ooh, I, I think that's pretty high, actually. Good for them. Every every movie that we've talked this month has higher than a four out of five on Letterbox average rating, which like as we've come to know, like, you know, a lot of movies kind of sit in the three to four range. So if you're over a four for your average, like that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> what it is uh, about some of his films that hit with a modern demographic a bit more. Because mm. we, when we reviewed Rear Window, we were talking about how replayable that film is, is that even by today's sort of standards, as far as pacing and all that kind of stuff is concerned, Rear Window still totally hits. And I think that Rope as well, still, I think you could play this for most modern audiences, even audiences who aren't necessarily kind of acclimated to what uh, a, a classic film, you know, kind of uh, means again as far as you know blind delivery pacing all of that kind of stuff i think that this is still a movie that would still you know play like gangbusters for a modern audience yeah well to to get uh some some comparative thoughts uh alicia you kind of gave your uh, opinion on why you picked the movie to talk today but uh so uh take us back to uh the first time you watch rope and maybe what this most recent rewatch did for you as far as your initial thoughts go yeah, so my first watch was when I was back in Canberra and went down to Network Video in Charnwood, um, which I later came to discover had an unusual amount of hard-to-find films when it closed down. That was something that the papers noted, that they had all these sort of deeper cuts made by directors. So I went down to the video store with the intention of finding another Hitchcock film that I hadn't seen you know, I had watched the, his major hits, but wanted to delve a little deeper into him. So discovered Rope, took that home, and I was just enthralled by it. I'm sure at that age, I didn't quite get the nuances of the relationships between the characters. But it was it's just one of those films, and I think this is true of many films shot in real time and shot to, to make it look like as if it's in one take, that it, it really amps up the tension. So I think, you know, Garrett, you're right that this does work for modern audiences because there is just that underlying tension throughout the film about whether this murder will be discovered or not. And you're just watching the entire time during the party that these guys have um, wondering what's going to happen next. And it's interesting because I don't know about you both, but I found when I watched the film the first time and again when I watched it just prior to uh, recording and I've seen it so many times since it's it's one of my favorite Hitchcocks um, I, I kind of wanted the the murders to get away with it <laughs> I didn't really want them to be discovered as unlikable as these characters are 
I kind of wanted them to get away with it. The perfect murder. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, this was uh, uh, my this was a bit later in my Hitchcock sort of um, obsession and love. I, I watched this uh, just a few short years ago uh, for the first time. I believe I was like in college or something. And <clears throat> it's interesting watching this movie, kind of knowing where it's placed in Hitchcock's, uh, you know, filmmaking and his, his oeuvre, if you will, that this was obviously 1948, shortly after World War II and him coming to the States and trying to, you know, make more of a name for himself after making films uh, over in Europe and now being, uh, you know, where he is now trying to get away from sort of the studio system and create his own production company, him starting off with Rope, I've always thought was a really interesting pick, you know, that he kind of, this was the first film in his production company that he was trying to stop. Spoiler alert, it didn't go well because this movie flopped. But uh, I always thought that this movie was such a fascinating choice for him as a filmmaker. And I think when you have his entire filmography in mind, I think that this movie makes perfect sense for Hitchcock to be interested in because of everything that Alicia was saying, that this film is pure suspense in like the most Hitchcock way, hiding a body in a trunk in a living room and just having people, you know, have hors d'oeuvres and drinks and and stuff around it that's something that Hitchcock I feel like would love and kind of just you know wring his hands through is just you know he, he loves the setting up that sort of um, suspense uh, for these types of films but I do think that in re-watching this movie what is really fascinating to me is the choice that he makes to do the one take uh, and that's something if we're uh, talking about, uh, you know, opinions on the film is not something that has entirely worked for me. I think it is a little gimmicky, and I think Hitch gets in his own way at times because <clears throat> I, I think Hitchcock has proved to be such a flashy you know, filmmaker who's so impressive from just a technical side of things that I think he gets a little too in the weeds of how are we going to do this from a technical aspect that I think he kind of robs himself of some opportunities as, you know, a director and as a filmmaker, but we'll definitely get into all of that. But what dev what does work for me is the characters of the film and the tension of the film as well as the subtext or the text of the film whatever you want to say because uh we'll definitely be getting into um all of that but i think that hitch is doing a lot of really interesting things here um as far as the 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 situation that these characters find themselves in lines here and there and, and really putting these kind of uh pieces on the board to sort of pull at the thread uh, the 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 thread that will kind of unravel this entire uh thing and it's fascinating to watch um hitchcock kind of go through the motions all of that and i will say i think and this is probably uh, my most controversial opinion this party looks kind of lame i'm just saying this is a really <laughs> lame party i probably wouldn't have gone there's no worry uh, there's no wonder it only lasts for like an hour and a half because this is really boring probably yeah i mean oh we've all i mean we've been to those parties i mean i mean this looks like another new york set one but like i mean in la you've definitely been to those parties as well yeah uh this one for me uh came again uh during the the like hitchcock speed run that i did last year whenever i was catching up for uh the incinerator um and uh, so it was in there and it was uh, one that I hadn't really heard too much about, but I knew it was kind of on the more genre side. So I kind of, you know, put it towards the priority list for watching it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a hoot and a holler. Uh, I think the uh, the, you know, simulated one take and it happening in real time does give the mystery uh, a certain sense of urgency. And um, as we uh, kind of talked in the birds, like I really love Hitchcock stories where we know so much more than the the characters know and the way that he uses that to like kind of play with our suspense as we're watching it because like this is you know 
a uh, a murder mystery that happens in reverse you know so it's like in and for this whole thing like and also the timeline of when this came out like this is Hitchcock showing off like this is literally his movie that he's coming over and like you know he's still making a name for himself in America he's like I need a flex on him one time so he you know he he does the he does the simulated one shot he introduces you know he gives you the answer to the to the plot at the beginning of the movie you know he does all these things and he's like but I'm still going to be able to craft you know a very tight you know entertaining film in under 85 minutes as well like on top of that as well he's like he's like americans your films are too long he's like i need like i can do this in 80 minutes like i don't need all that like that like there is something um i i definitely kind of feel um a, a bit of his ego coming through in this film i don't think that's a bad thing i think it's like it's doing something very simple but doing it in the most extra way possible and i mean who doesn't love that um you know so i mean aside from the the you know uh cast as well like even the directing is a little bit flamboyant in its own in its own way and uh i think the the conversations are fun the characters are uh, all the performances are super fun and uh and and again just like yeah i think i think we think of the one shot thing as gimmicky now because so many people do it and it's kind of easier to do these days as well to be able to hide cuts and stuff like again this is back in 48 like this is this is pretty damn cool to be able to pull that off in this time so um, and I think it does still serve a purpose too. It's not like he's just doing it for for the gig. So um, uh, I really enjoy this one quite a bit, and I'm very excited to dig a little deeper. Um, Alicia, are you ready to give us a sixty second synopsis? All right, I'll I'll give it my best shot. Um, okay, I would say here we go. It's a story of murder and privilege. Two arrogant, pretentious college students murder a friend hide the body have a party and try to get away with the perfect murder hey you That's didn't even you didn't even need 30 seconds for that one <laughs> um but i, I mean, mean it's a pretty simple plot but uh, yeah but like you said the way that it's executed is is what makes it interesting yeah i think that and that is such a hitchcock thing to do is to have this pretty easy sort of elevator pitch of a movie but the complexity comes out of the characters and out of the interactions and then also the themes and the ideas that Hitchcock is playing with here. So, yeah, this movie is simple, really only in name only, but even in like the <laughs> filmmaking involved in this, it's described as a disaster. Uh, it was like very hyper technical to where, you know, uh, something that in uh, Devon had already mentioned that being in 1948, we don't really mm -hmm. think about like the technical limitations at the time where cameras, you know, in this time period could only hold about 10 minutes or, or um, yeah, about 10 minutes of film. So setting up and, 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 you know, moving this giant camera throughout the space and, you know, trying to build a set that can accommodate for it. They actually had to build walls that had wheels that they would, you know, be moving the set around as they were, you know, actively filming it. So I think Hitchcock really, you know, kind of challenged himself here to make a film that would kind of play out as like a like a production like a like a play you know mm -hmm. that he is trying to make a cinematic sort of version of this and i think that especially the way the movie ends you can imagine just kind of like the house lights going down you know it, yes. it, it very much so is like a, a broadway play so to speak yeah and it was actually based on a play which yes. hitchcock had seen called rope's end and mm -hmm. apparently the play was much much gayer but of course being 1948 hollywood they had to yeah. tone things down so everything is yeah. through winks and nods but Hitchcock was able to push it 
a little bit further with the the nature of the relationship between the two lead characters um more than many other filmmakers could at the time because he mm -hmm. was hitchcock and he had wanted to make a film he was interested in trying the the conceit or the gimmick of having a a one shot and like you said garrett it was extremely challenging for 1948 um i think he regretted actually <laughs> doing it while he was filming because it was so complex but this was also the first color film for alfred hitchcock who would then of course go back to black and white and swap between black and white and color um but it, it like i remember reading an anecdote from jimmy stewart uh who plays the professor in the film and and he was so confused about what Alfred Hitchcock was doing. And so Alfred Hitchcock told him, you know, I want to make it feel like a play, like you are watching a live play in front of you. The audience is watching a play. And he was like, why don't you just sell tickets and get the audience to pull up chairs and we'll do it for them. Like this is too <laughs> yeah. complex to make it into a film. But I think it, it, that's also why it's so interesting to watch through today's lens where we know that, you know, even your iPhone could film for yeah. an hour and a half mm -hmm. um, uninterrupted. Um, it's fun also to watch. There's 10 shots in Rope. So it's fun to kind of pick out where mm -hmm. the cuts are. Yeah. And they always cut when it goes on someone's back or a piece of furniture moves in front, you know, yeah. but it's still fairly seamless for oh, yeah. some time. There's a, a, another, uh, you know, anecdote that I heard uh, from Jimmy Stewart where he was talking, you know, Hitch was, again, trying to reassure him and be like, don't worry, we'll have a bunch of rehearsals and all of these things, it'll be fine. And, and Stewart said, well, the only thing that's getting rehearsed is the cameras. Like, as actors, <laughs> yeah. we're kind of just waiting for you to figure out this magic trick, you know. Uh, exactly. so, but I, I think... Yeah, uh, you, you have to applaud it. You know, I think Hitchcock is really trying to do something daring and especially for this time. It's just kind of unheard of. And even by modern standards, it's still pretty impressive. Yeah, as a as a you know patron saint of defending style over substance, I am firmly yes. Like I I, I feel like doing this like is what kind of separates it from being a play. Like you said, like well, what's the difference if we don't just have audience pull up? You know, you got to make it cinematic in in some way. And I think that was a way to make again. Like this is a very uh, you know, aside from the murder part, it's a very innocuous evening. It's people coming over to hang out. There's nothing really too exciting about that, you know. So how are you going to make that cinematic and make people question why am I watching this on the big screen rather than watching this on the stage? And so mm -hmm. I, I think, so I think the effort kind of worked out in that way. And I've mentioned in previous episodes, like I, I think Hitchcock is more in his bag when he is doing the more contained inside. Um, films versus like whenever he's like kind of out and about and like kind of has the more sprawling sayings like I think when he even for how meticulous had to be for him again like like that's kind of a wet dream for him to have this much control over you know the camera and everything that people are seeing uh in in this he just has a built-in excuse he's like hey, well hey we gotta we gotta pull this camera thing off so everything's gotta be perfect and everybody's just kind of rolling their eyes standing on their mark that they've been standing on for the past <laughs> 30 minutes you know and um i, I think exactly. it works out really well um so let's uh get into some of the subgenres here uh in rope uh alicia would you like to kick us off on uh, some of your favorite uh subgenre elements that are working for you here in rope mm, well um I, you mentioned the, the idea of the claustrophobic thriller, and um, that's something, like you said, that Hitchcock does really well. I think of Rear Window, but you also think of something like Lifeboat, all set on a lifeboat, and this kind of self-contained story 
which is all happening within one room and here it's within one night and um, for me you know it, uh, it just always brings up the tension when you have a story set in a confined space I think of something like Buried with Ryan Reynolds from a couple of years ago that was all set inside a coffin. I mean, when you place the camera inside a small space, you make the audience feel just as claustrophobic as the characters do. Uh, and the fact that you have the chest with the body that is so prominently in the scene and right there at the beginning of the shot, I think that just amps up the uh, the horror and the tension of that claustrophobic feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like the way that you put it as like, you know, like you're not only putting it, putting yourself in with the characters, but it's something about the director, like not allowing you to leave either. Like, hey, yeah, like you are so you true. are stuck in this you know situation until I say that you can that we can leave this uh, this, mm -hmm. you know, setting this uh, situation. Uh, so, I, so I, again, like kind of comes back to that that little angle of control in a way. Uh, Garrett, what are uh, some of the subgenre elements sticking out for you? I think that Hitchcock, a lot of his films could be described as a psychological thriller, but I think that this is uh, particularly true here because, like you had mentioned, this movie and what happens within the plot is pretty innocuous. Like, there's a death up, at, uh, you know, at the top of the film. And then for the rest of the movie, we're seeing this kind of reverse mystery uh, of everybody else trying to figure it out while we, the audience, are uh, we, we know the answer. We saw it at the very beginning of the film. So having this uh, mystery that is attempting to be answered by these other characters, characters that, you know, like like Rupert, Jimmy, uh, James Stewart's character is this uh, very mysterious character within, uh, you know, of himself. And he's trying to uncover this mystery. And you're, you almost feel like Brandon and Philip do, <clears throat> excuse me, waiting to watch him kind of put all the, the clues together and having this sort of, ooh, what does he know? What was that look that he gave? And he looked at his pocket, you know, and kind of putting yourself uh, in their, their thought processes here. So I think that this, as well as uh, Rear Window, like you had already mentioned, Alicia, is this isolated thriller, uh, but I think Hitch has a lot of fun kind of putting the audience through this sort of psychological cat and mouse game is literally what it's called in the movie, and I think it's really true. Yeah, there's, there, there's definitely, like, I mean, yeah, because... Uh, Hitchcock has always been a little bit more interested in, yeah, kind of the uh, horrors of the mind and, you know, like the, the horrors of not knowing, of not, of not truly knowing someone. Like, because all these people mm -hmm. at the party, they all know each other and all these things, but do they truly know Philip and Brandon, how, like, you know, twisted they are and, like, the things behind them? And then, and that even comes into play between Philip and Brandon as well, as they don't know each other as well as they think they do. Um, so, yeah, definitely some of that. Yeah, we we talked the the reverse murder mystery. I I find very fascinating. Um, uh, definitely. Um, again, uh, a lot of the films that we've talked about this month, Hitchcock's a funny dude. He's got some really great dark comedy. Um, <laughs> as much as I gave, um, LB Jeffries and Jimmy Stewart shit in the Rear Window episode, uh, Rupert, uh, Jimmy Stewart in this is one hundred percent me. Like that is me at a party joking about <laughs> carrying dead bodies around. And like shit like that, like although like his morbid humor throughout the movie, I'm like this this guy is me like 100. Um, and and which also brings in some of the uh, social cringe horror that we've talked about in in uh, some other films like Shiva Baby, um, where you know you again you're you're watching these interactions kind of unfold and and like just uh just uh, watching 
uh, Philip just like just lose his shit this entire movie. Like, I mean, he's sweating, he's fidgeting all the time. Like, he, like, and so it's like it's not only just like oh, he's having a poor social interaction. It's like you're watching him have a poor social interaction while he's trying to cover up the fact that you know he just murdered somebody 30 minutes ago. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like the the. You know, and and that and the the politeness that comes into you know certain interactions and like the the order of you know the way that you do things or what is acceptable to talk about, what's not acceptable to talk about. So like, there's a lot of um you know pushing of those boundaries of these like uh, social niceties. Um, but uh, and of course, I mean, uh, a lot of people have talked about a lot more these days. It obviously couldn't be talked about uh before is uh, kind of the the queer horror angle of it, and I think. Um, that's a good place to jump off uh, as we talk about our our, our two murder boys here, uh, Brandon and Philip, um, which the film opens up with them strangling this person, which is us pretty much walking in on them having sex. Like, that's what this is like. Like, I remember the first time I watched this, I go, oh, they just fucked in front of me. Like, that's that's what I'm seeing <laughs> as they like, you know, the, the release and like the way that um, he breathes afterwards and even in even in just some of the the specific wording of um it like you know uh, he like Brandon looks at Philip for a second like is about to like uh like touch him or something he's like no 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 let's just stay this way for a minute and i was like that is like oh my goodness like so like yeah. again like you know it's funny being able to see this now as like this is blatant just text in front of us i mean he's smoking a cigarette he's taking philip's gloves off gingerly i mean this yeah. this whole opening scene just like had me in from the beginning so uh alicia uh, what was your take on uh yeah. on a philip and brandon's uh, kind of relationship as a whole well, I think you nailed it. You know, it's such a intimate beginning. It's something that they, are, it's a secret they're both in on together, but it also seems like it's it's a way that they're getting their thrills together. So much subtext about what their, the true nature of their relationship is. I think we could definitely say it's a toxic relationship <laughs> with, uh, you know, it's like definitely not uh, on equal standing. I think poor uh, Philip gets bullied a lot by Brandon, Philip played by Farley Granger and Brandon played by John Dahl. And um, they, you know, they, they just have this back and forth between them. Garrett, you mentioned the, the cat and mouse game, but it was it's also feels like a cat and mouse game between them as well as between Rupert and these two um, as they are trying to hide multiple secrets, possibly even about their relationship. Um, the play, of course, was based on a true murder at the, of, um, from 1924, the Leopold and Loeb murder, where two men um, murdered a 14-year-old boy, two college students murdered a 14-year-old mm-hmm. boy and thought that they could get away with it. And... Um, that a lot of that was brought into the play and then into the film as well. And I, I do wonder what audiences thought about the relationship of Brandon and Philip at the time. Um, like we said, it was something not talked about, but something definitely that was um, a lot of winks and nods. And I'm sure more people understood it than we may believe. But also the big focus was on the fact that it was based on this true murder. Yeah, I think uh, keeping in mind kind of 
where Hitchcock was at in his career, but also just where Hollywood was at in this time is these were not things that were openly talked about, you know, with the Hayes Code and all of that. Filmmakers were forced to go these kind of roundabout ways to talk about (laughs) these things, but obviously couldn't be kind of, quote unquote, detected by censors. And there is a a funny anecdote uh, uh, from the writer of the film who was talking about there was a line that he had wrote where he uh, Brandon had said, like, oh, my dear boy or something like that and they had like crossed that off yet they allow lines like what a lovely evening pity we couldn't have done it with the curtains open and the bright sunlight they that's fine you know (laughs) that's that's totally that's totally okay but there there are so many you could make a supercut of all of the innuendos in this film because there are so many of them and that's why i said that like i don't even know if i would call it subtext in this film because i think hitchcock certainly was aware of what was you know happening uh behind the scenes uh the uh, actor who uh, portrays uh, Philip Farley Granger was having a relationship with the writer of the film behind the scenes. That was kind of this closeted, you know, relationship. Hitch was very well aware of that. He didn't really care uh, and was just, you know, wanting to, to, to you know, to make this movie. And I, I think that a lot of the critics of, at the time were certainly aware of the, the innuendos. I, the play was described as being very racy and very sexy, uh, but also, you know, dealing with murder and, and all of these things. And I think when you watch the film, you'd have to be blind or, you know, you'd have to be asleep to not notice a lot of the, the, the subtext of this film because it is all over this movie. Them having this kind of, um, you know, sort of, uh, rush from getting caught just the idea of that when they're describing what it felt like and he you know he said it was exhilarating when his body went limp i you know i knew it was all over <laughs> and there's so many lines in the film that you know are not just talking about that but are also talking about you know other things happening in the country as well there's an entire conversation at the end of the film where they're talking about people who are deserving of life and who are not deserving of life and you know sort of playing god and the fact that Jimmy Stewart, a World War II veteran, is the one who's delivering, you know, those lines, I think certainly uh, has a lot of uh, weight and pathos to those as well. So I think Hitchcock isn't, this would be easy just to kind of chalk up to be in the gay movie, one of, to be clear, one of the gay movies that Hitchcock <laughs> made. Uh, but it is, I think it's certainly about so many more things, including, you know, what was happening uh, over in, you know, Nazi Germany and a lot of stuff. I, I, I think Hitchcock is kind of working on multiple levels here. Oh, I mean, it, it goes on to a, a level of just about you know like it's a levels of like there's talks of you know superior and inferior humans in this in this film you know and like so it it goes beyond race it goes beyond the sexuality uh even though the sexuality is still presented in a way that like the reason he's able to like be so blunt but get away with it because it's a lot of language that's like uh and and it ties into the movie as well as like oh it's only it's only sexual if you make it sexual if you're thinking about it but then it's like well, uh, like, you know, so they, they take like the, the obviously the rope that they, they strangle the guy with, you know, they strangle a guy. And then whenever Brandon's trying to make the point, he's like, he's like, well, this is just a, a household article. If somebody sees a piece of rope in, in the kitchen, they're not going to be weirded out by it. But it's like, well, yeah, because we didn't see you just fuck somebody with it just a minute ago. That's why <laughs> it's not, you know, sexual because they don't have that context. So there's, it's like I, I wanted to add, there's also an entire scene where they're like berating uh, one of the characters for, quote unquote, like choking the chicken, which is just like, yeah. come on, man. Come on. That that was OK. The Hays Code didn't know. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. 
totally can talk about choking as many chickens as you want. And well, I think it's like the, the production code at the time. And there is an argument to be made that the production code, even though it forbids so many things, it made writers even smarter and more intelligent yeah. in how to get around the censors. It's like they censors would just read the scripts and they would read them like at face value in a way mm. and wouldn't read too deeply into them. So it's all in the way that Hitchcock directs the characters uh, to speak and move that you start to to realize what's been said, but it, you might've read it straight and not thought about what he was actually trying to mm -hmm. convey. Yeah, which, which kind of gets into like the, the why of them doing this murder to begin with. Like that is kind of the, cause that's the mystery for us. Like, you know, cause mm -hmm. we already know that they did the murder. Uh, so while everyone else is, you know, just trying to discover their body, we're trying to figure out why they do this. And they do an interesting thing where rather than trying to, um, defend themselves or their own actions like they already kind of have this idea of like oh well you know we're from this school uh you know like we were like we're above like they even dig at a uh, homie that they kill and they're like ah oh, he was a harvard graduate so like it's whatever <laughs> um you know so like they already kind of have that elevated sense so it's like they don't feel like they need to defend themselves what they do is they try to they try to talk about murder and make it normal they try to like rationalize it you know of just being like you know, murder is actually not that crazy when you really think about it, uh, you know, and like, so they're like, there's this like kind of rationale that they're trying to talk themselves into. And the thrill isn't the murder that they pulled off itself. The thrill is, uh, you know, getting one over to to, again, prove their superiority over everybody, like literally every time they have like a close call. And then they'll do like a close up of them and they're just like breathing, like all like, like, like nervously, but like excitedly. It's like, calm down, guy. Like, geez, Louise. Yeah. like they get off on the on these like close calls. So, again, it's like not even about the murder itself at this point. It's just like they're in uh, in a superiority complex uh, above everyone else. Yeah, and I, I, I do admire kind of uh, Hitch, uh, Hitch's, you know, willingness to poke fun at sort of the the upper class, you know, socialites, similar to like how like American Psycho does, is that making fun of these rich people who are probably psychopaths, they're probably absolute lunatics who are, you know, again, like the, the Harvard graduate line is a hilarious line of saying like, oh, he's a he's a lower class citizen. It's like, guy went to Harvard, man. Like, <laughs> like that seems pretty uh, upper class to me, but them kind of, you know, having there's a conversation that they have of saying that, like, we are the upper members of society and those who are down below us, we're able to kind of do whatever we want to them because it doesn't matter. Like, you can't pass moral judgment on us because we're higher than they are. And I think that that, again, is a, a, a theme that certainly I, I would say has a lot of relevancy today about, you know, mm -hmm. class disparity and, and everything. So, I again, I know a lot of people just kind of poke at this movie of being like the, the funny gay one, but I think that Hitchcock is is working through a lot of different ideas and and I don't think that you would be telling him anything that was news to him. He's not like, yeah. oh, it's not like a uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 thing where the director was like, oh, this movie is gay. And it's like, dude, how could you not know? <laughs> Hitchcock was very well aware of like kind of, you know, uh, the, the the paint that he was brushing with here. I, I think mm -hmm. what makes up this film is the the nuances and the layers and the complexities, you know. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that he delves into this idea of privilege and definitely the idea of white privilege and intellectual privilege and these two men who think that they are above everyone else and that they are the ones who can 
perform the perfect murder and that they have a great plan figured out by having everyone over and also that they are like you said Devon getting this thrill from having the body stuffed in the chest that any moment someone could discover what happened but they feel like especially Brandon feels like he's going to get away with it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we've we talked about, I mean, most film people know Chekhov's gun, you, you show the thing, you got it, it mm-hmm. has to go off later. So uh, what do you guys uh, feel about this, uh, uh, the structure of the way that he's doing this with having uh, the body in the trunk and like kind of, you have set pieces and conversations moving around it and like there's moments where, you know, Brandon is like wanting uh, the maid to... Uh, no, I want you to specifically put the charcuterie board on this trunk. And she's like, well, why? There's more room on that table. It doesn't make sense. I got to have the candles. He's like, no, no, no. Put it here on this trunk. So, like, what, what do you guys yeah. uh, think about the the this uh, this structure for uh, – I mean, I, I know J.J. Abrams has probably watched this movie a million times, him and his uh, mystery box <laughs> mystery theory box, that yeah. he thinks he invented, when it's like, no, 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 Hitchcock did it. So, like, what, uh, what does the structure of this uh, add to the film? Yeah, well, something that Hitchcock was obviously very known for is uh, the idea of what you don't see being terrifying, more terrifying than what you do see. And there were some critics, and there have been over the years, who said that the he shouldn't have shown the murder at the beginning because it would have been more interesting if you were wondering whether these guys actually did commit a murder or not and without actually seeing it. But for me, I think, you know, and you touched on this earlier, Devon, the fact that the audience knows more than the characters do is really interesting and to have the chest right there and you as an audience member know exactly what's in the chest and you are imagining it which is probably more horrific than if we actually saw the body stuffed in the chest and it feels very perverse to have charcuterie board uh, a doily um, candles on top of this chest uh, he even calls it like a sacrificial altar mm-hmm. at one point. Um, it also, again, just ramps up the tension because they have so many near misses. One of my favorite moments in the film is when the camera is looking at Mrs. Wilson, who is coming back it, to the chest with some books that she's going to put back inside the chest after the party is done. And we are hearing the characters talk off screen, but we are watching her walk to the camera. And you know, you're like, no, 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 don't go to the chest. Don't open the chest. There's a body inside. And they manage to head her off just before she does. But those kind of moments, I think, is is what made Hitchcock so brilliant because he is, like we've been talking about, a master puppeteer. He uh, not only controlled all of his actors on the set, but he controls exactly what the audience is feeling at all times. I I have to shout out my favorite bit of editing from that scene is whenever (laughs) you see Francesca is carrying the books and it's tied together with the rope that they used. And it cuts to it cuts to Philip's face, and he's like all worried and everything. And it slowly <laughs> pans over to Brandon with the most evil, mischievous smile on his face. Cracks me up every single time. It's it's so good. And it's yeah, like I, Brandon wants to be discovered. And Philip <laughs> is terrified. Yeah. I'm telling you, it is like this like exhibitionist sort of. It's like it, he he likes getting caught. That's his kink, man. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's yeah, really into that. But um, I do think that to, to me the suggestion that hiding the murder at the beginning would somehow magically make this movie more interesting. I don't really 
I don't really quite understand that. I think that a lot of the fun of this film is exchanging one mystery for another. It's not this question of did they or didn't they kill him? It's who is going to f figure out this murder and are they going to get caught? That's the mystery here. And I think on top of that, the character of Rupert is somebody with so much mystery. I love structurally that his character, sort of the foil to this entire thing, isn't introduced until like well into the movie. Like 30 minutes into the movie is when you know, James Stewart actually shows up and this is after they've kind of talked up this character to where uh, Philip is really nervous that Rupert is coming over. And he's like, if, if anybody's going to figure Anyone it out, Anyone but Rupert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that when he's introduced later, that's raising the stakes, again, kind of enhancing on that tension. I think that just watching this movie and just wondering if they killed this guy, when there are multiple scenes throughout the movie that they admit to killing that person, you know, mm -hmm. you would have to completely restructure the entire film. So I, I can understand that, but I think that the the film would be be far more common if they did that but i think what hitch is doing here is different and it's i i think it really works it's really fascinating but something i also love about this movie is the characters that populate this film you had already mentioned mrs wilson who is hilarious i love that scene mm -hmm. where they're like we're gonna serve champagne tonight and she's like oh champagne i didn't know it was that kind of night you know she's like gonna get all <laughs> guzzied up and she's like oh who's gonna be coming and she likes certain people and she wants to like look nice for them so shout out mrs wilson she's the best yeah <laughs> yes, I, I i love the i love you know the the wrench that rupert does throw into all this like uh because obviously if you keep pushing the queer theory a little bit more rupert is uh is speculated to be an ex-lover of brandon is kind of where a lot of people fit him into the into the puzzle mm -hmm. because there is a kind of a degree of you know phil's worried you know about him being there versus brandon's like oh no no i need him here so i can show off all the things including you but like i need, I need to show off all the things you know mm -hmm. so it's like kind of uh, uh the dynamic that they have going on um this was a uh, uh, hitchcock wanted Cary grant for this one uh and you know you guys know me being a, a grant boy I, I snapped my fingers at that one um but uh, uh jimmy stewart uh is a uh, fantastic uh in this like he, he bring like even uh even his introduction like you said like we we spend the movie like kind of hyping him up you know and everything and then uh, just his uh, in, uh, introduction, he comes in. I mean, he's just risen up everybody left and right. Uh, and it's just like, and I'm just like, man, all right, you're, you're winning me over. It's, it's kind of hard for me not to, to love uh, Rupert uh, whenever uh, he meets uh, What's-Her-Face. And she's like, he's like, oh, yes, I've heard about you. And did he do me justice? And he just goes, did you do, do you deserve justice? And I was like, ooh, ooh, okay, I felt that one in my bones. Uh, so so I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big Rupert fan. Well, Alicia, I wanted to ask you about what you think of uh, Jimmy Stewart's casting in this film, because I think it, it, he's not a natural choice. I know Cary Grant, mm. Devon had already mentioned, you know, he didn't really want to be attached to this film because it was described as, you know, being about it, quote unquote, it being, you know, homosexuality. And there was already enough rumors. It was, it was <laughs> too effeminate, apparently. Yeah, yeah, so many rumors already surrounded, you know, Cary Grant at the time. But Jimmy Stewart kind of being, you know, this not overtly sexy kind not like physically but i don't think most people think of jimmy stewart as like a sex symbol or a sex icon and not that mm -hmm. he needs to be but i think that this film is a bit more racy alicia do you think that jimmy stewart is well cast in this role or do you think it's kind of an odd choice but maybe works i think it it's an odd choice on paper but it definitely works in the film and this was the first time hitchcock worked with jimmy stewart and they'd go on to make 
many more films together. And I liked how Alfred Hitchcock would use Jimmy Stewart because he had that everyman quality. You know, people liken him today to someone like Tom Hanks. He's someone that you feel like you're friends with. He's very affable, um, very friendly, but I always enjoy his roles like, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington where he can deliver these very intelligent monologues and here he just plays this character so well in that like you said you're not sure about him you don't know what he's thinking you don't know the true nature of his relationship to Brandon and Philip Um, you get the sense that Brandon like you said Devon wants to show off for him Brandon believes that Rupert would be very impressed by this murder and, and how they pulled it off um, but Rupert has much a, more of a moral code that he lives by than mm-hmm. Brandon and Philip. And um, I like that he is essentially playing the detective of the film, although he's not working as a detective, he's a professor. But just the way that he sits back, he's thinking, the, the looks that he gives to these two characters as he's starting to put two and two together. And playing a professor, you believe that he is intelligent enough to kind of connect the dots and figure out what went on. So I think it's great casting, um, and I think he just plays it really well. Whether or not he was um, confused by what was going on, which sounds like he was on set, not sure how this film was going to turn up, but he had a great time working with Alfred Hitchcock. And I also love the fact that they make fun of Cary Grant yes, <laughs> during right. the film. Yeah, They're that. trying to like, oh, what's the thing? Let's, the title of the, you know, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was either something or something and something. <laughs> yeah, there's something and something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a funny little dig. And, and, and I like how, again, in like, you know, Hitchcock's films being like, you know, very resonant in today's day. Um, you know, I like the idea that, you know, with Rupert being the professor and like basically to put it in more modern day terms is like if Rupert was a YouTuber and then some (laughs) of his followers saw a video and he's doing a character and they go, Oh no, he's onto something. And then they take Mm -hmm. his word and they go like, that's basically what they do. And he he calls them out for it. He's like, okay, you've proven my philosophies, right? But like they were supposed to be philosophies. They're theories. They're not supposed to be proven. Uh, You psychopaths uh, is, is, is very interesting. And, kind of seeing uh you know especially like you know we we you know it's nothing new um but you know we've had you know many a times where you know media influences you know real life um bad events to happen things like that so it's like a another one of these things that Hitchcock kind of hit you know at its at its very core and all we've seen is that evolve over time so um still also kind of scary in that fact as well that it's like you know 70 years later it's like people are still mm-hmm. learning you, you you don't need to uh follow your idols that hard <laughs> yeah I I think exactly. of uh some of the other you know faces that populate this movie I was a big fan of uh Joan Chandler who plays Janet in the film she didn't really have like a super illustrious career she mostly went on to uh work in uh, television after this but I it's it's unfortunate because I think she's really great in this movie and I maybe it's just because she was a brunette that <laughs> Hitchcock didn't uh yeah. recast her in future stuff but I thought she was a really wonderful addition to this film yeah I thought she was really interesting and and uh, you mentioned the Hitchcock Blonde, and this is one of the few films that doesn't feature the Hitchcock Blonde or even really a, a love interest that's not between the two men. So I think yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah, David, I think, is the only blonde in this movie, and he doesn't last <laughs> very <right>. long. <laughs> Does not last long. Yeah, because the, the fiancé is also a brunette, and, and also like uh, the audacity of uh, these guys when you look at this guest list. Uh, obviously, you know, Rupert, the professor slash ex-lover, 
uh, invites uh, the murder victim's parents. Uh, well, dad and fiance goes, ah, yeah, let's let's have the dad over too. Let's see if he figures it out. I don't know, like, because that would that's like the worst case scenario is if the dad, you know, is the one that like solved the 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 mystery. Uh, that would have been a gut punch because like you guys are evil. Why'd you bring? Why'd you invite him? <laughs> I do want to know, like, why did they think that this was such a perfect murder? It seems like they just strangled yeah. the guy and shoved him in a chest. And they and they say, like, what kind of their plan was afterwards. And they're like, it seems like they're waiting for it to be dark so they can carry yes. him downstairs. But yep. they very clearly live on, like, a pretty high floor. Are they just going to drag his body down the stairs? Like, I don't know exactly know. what their getaway plan was here. <laughs> I know. I, th- I, th- I agree. And I think, you know, they were just thinking that they were so smart in having a party you know, with the the dead guy's parents there and with the dead guy actually there and mm-hmm. and that could be an alibi for the fact that they didn't do it, but it actually, you wonder, like, what was their next plan? They were yeah. driving to Connecticut. They're going to dump the body up there? I'm not quite sure. I, yeah. The first time I watched this, I remember the... You know the the like the true finale that we have is like you know they we have a couple close calls throughout the party but then they they, they everyone leaves and everybody goes home and it's all good uh, until you know Rupert uh you know quote unquote forgets his cigarette case and wants to come back up because he was he was tipped off by a hat literally he was tipped off by a hat Jesus Freddie <laughs> um um but uh so you know we, they have this confrontation and. Uh, the first time it's like it, it plays off as Brandon, you know, kind of having this tête-à-tête with Rupert of, well, uh, you know, like showing how airtight their plan was versus now the second time whenever I watched it and these bumbling fools, <laughs> one of you just said it a minute ago, it's like, did you actually have a plan for what was going to happen after his dinner? I think they were literally asking Rupert, like, so what would you do? If the if it was a murder, like you know, like they they didn't they they needed Rupert to give them the after plan of like oh yeah we do have to wait till nighttime since it you know it, we live so high up and all these things. Well, I wonder <laughs> if there is an element of it that when when Brandon is talking to Rupert, he kind of assumes that he would be in on it, that he would be okay with mm-hmm. it, and I think that that certainly lends a lot of credence to think that maybe they did have this prior relationship and that he maybe is like yeah Phillips kind of squeamish. He's a little gun shy. Yeah, he did it, but he's nervous about the whole thing. But Rupert, he's cutthroat. You know, Rupert is this socialite who who claims that he believes in all of these things. So I think that he's kind of hoping that even if he does figure it out, that's just going to be another accomplice that they might have. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you think they were truly... Be, uh, counting on Rupert like joining them not, not Philip but I think if Brandon did have a relationship mm. with Rupert like they have that conversation earlier in the film where you know Rupert says again he kind of is is agreeing with what Brandon is saying about these you know uh, upper class citizens they don't have this moral code doesn't follow you know them they they don't have to abide by this because the the laws of man they don't they don't uh, you know include these more you know well-to-do people that I think that he's not expecting Rupert to kind of have this change of heart that he does at the end of the film because he's he's confronted with you know the the product of his actual words you know if you carry on that line of thinking and just seeing other people as that the you know the other and not these real people as you know as they say somebody who's capable of loving and being sad and having feelings and experiences whatever they you know the line is um i think that brandon is kind of you know, pushing his chips in to assume that Rupert would be okay with all of this. Mm, so he's like, put your put your money where your mouth is. You you yeah. spout all these things. You have all these 
uh, stuff. And I guess it's, I guess Brandon probably thought it was just going to be a win-win for him in either way. It's either A, we're going to get Rupert in on this and he's going to help us out, or B, mm-hmm. I get to show that I'm better and I, you know, have better ideas than him and, like, you know, his his philosophies are wrong and, like, uh, you know, doing it again to, mm-hmm. to kind of show off in a way. Yeah, I, I did want to ask, because uh, we've talked a lot about, like, the characters and the, the, the thematic side of the film, but I did want to talk about kind of the one take. You know, I think that that's something that this film is really well known for. I'd mentioned up top that it doesn't quite work for me, but it seems like you guys were really a, a, a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the fact that it's a one take. I think that's what makes this film so fascinating. Like we've said, it has such a simple plot. Uh, like you guys mentioned, the party isn't that exciting, but the fact that it is shot within one take um, amps up the tension. I think that's what I love about one takes is that even though you know that the actors have rehearsed it, that it's been edited, that there's not going to be any mistakes, watching it does feel like you're watching a live play and that anything could happen at any moment. An actor could flub a line, um, something could fall over, or if you're really into the story, that the murder is going to be discovered at any moment. It just keeps you on that edge of um, wondering what's going to happen next. It feels like anything is possible with the one take. And also just, again, it's just from the technical standpoint, uh, like we've talked about the incredible challenges of shooting this in 1948. I love the idea of all the stagehands running behind Hitchcock with the camera and the (laughs) cinematographer, (laughs) just moving the furniture and the set and then moving it back. I think that itself is such an accomplishment. Plus, I think the one take really helps to, and we've also touched on this, Hitchcock liked to control not only his actors, but his audience. And it really forces you to look in certain directions. It also makes you feel like you are right there on set, watching it all. You're at the party. You are watching what's going to happen next, and, and you're not sure what's gonna what's what's gonna go down. You know? Yeah, it, it, yeah. There was like a moment where it's like there's like a two conversations, and like even if you're interested in the one on the right, but he wants you on the left, he's like, no, 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 and he like literally does like a like a mm-hmm. Jimmy with the with the camera, uh, which is really fun. And you know, I mean, I think not. For me, it's, I mean, yeah, I think visually uh, there's a there's a few really cool shots in there, like uh, with uh, the swinging kitchen door a few times. Mm. Um, and like, again, like with some of the, the panning in the editing um, is really fun. But uh, I think uh, apart from it being like making it, you know, visually dynamic and interesting, um, it's the it's putting it in real time. Like, that's what matters to me. Like, I don't care if I can like see, Oh, there's the cut there. Like, I don't care. Like it, it, it's close enough, but it's the, it's the, it's putting it in the time frame of when you're in, you know, this kind of situation where it's like, you know, an hour is a lot longer than you think it is, you know, like, you know, like, so like putting that in whenever we have this whole underlying tension and you're just like watching and then you're like, you know, somebody's about to leave and then it's like everybody's out. And then, no, 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 somebody forgot something. They had to come back. So you're not done with the situation yet. You know, it's like uh, uh, introverted hosts have all been there uh, whenever you're just like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, having this whole thing where you you know probably didn't want to have it anyways. Um, so like just putting it in the real time uh, puts uh, the, the sense of urgency um, uh, into the movie and like uh, again like and uh just like kind of really puts you like you said at the party as well so it's 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 more for that um for the immersiveness than it is for as far as like just being a visual aesthetic and i also wanted to sorry i also wanted to mention the sunset 
Yeah. yeah. I love the fact that they have the, the sunset in the background, which again is just underscoring the idea of it happening in real time. Obviously not a real backdrop, real sunset, but impressive nonetheless. Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing is I, I love how they're able to have these subtle kind of clues of, of, of cha changing the, you know, the painted backdrop behind the window or lighting. There's the scene in the... Uh, the, the final confrontation to where now it's dark outside and the neon signs from outside are kind of illuminating the set. Like, I think that there's a lot of uh, fun that Hitchcock is having sort of out of this challenge. You had mentioned the shot uh, with the swinging door to where he drops mm. the rope in the, in the kitchen cupboard. Like that's such a great shot. There's, um, that same scene in the final confrontation where they're asking like, well, Rupert, if you were to do it, how would you do it? And he kind of takes them through it, but we don't follow Rupert. We follow kind of this imaginary path that they would be taking. Uh, that That's a really great shot. But I think for me, it's I, I'm having a, a hard time of just being impressed by what they were able to accomplish versus that feeling of like, but I know what Hitch is capable of. And I know mm -hmm. that he is a filmmaker that is really applauded for always having the camera in the exact place that it should be and being somebody that is so dynamic and creative in their blocking and also reveals so much uh, exposition and information in their blocking and, and is just such a talented filmmaker from a technical side of thing. He's like one of the filmmakers, you know, that a lot of filmmakers point to and saying, you know, watch Hitchcock's movies with the sound off and it'll like change the way that you see his movies that I just am like, oh, why are you putting like kind of, you know, why, why are you kind of pulling back the reins on your filmmaking or giving yourself this challenge where I'm kind of just like, be free. It's not a play. It's a movie. You know, you're able to have a bit more creativity in the situation. And I don't know if, if he would have to exchange the in real time aspect uh, in order to have a film just, you know, not be completely uh, locked down, so to speak. So I don't I don't dislike it by any means, but I'm just I have that voice in the, you know, but, you know, behind being like, uh, but yeah, what he could have done maybe would have been a little bit cooler, but it's still wildly impressive the fact that this is 1948 likely shot you know 1947 it's it's amazing what they're able to accomplish and how much work you know i i think that that's something a lot of modern modern audiences take for granted is how hard it was to make movies back then because of the technological limitations but i think through creativity you know they were able to to uh, make a film that that is not dampered by the limitations but you know is is really kind of underscored by them yeah. Did you uh, did you have anything else that you want to hit before we get into our final thoughts, Garrett? Uh, I'm good. I, I just to get into final thoughts. Yeah, I thought that this film uh, is one of Hitch's best examples of characters in a situation being the main sort of catalyst for suspense. I, I think Hitchcock, you can practically hear him just, you know, twirling his proverbial mustache behind the camera just having fun just kind of putting these characters through the ringer i feel so bad for poor philip throughout this entire film because he's know. just sweating and nervous <laughs> and is just about to have a nervous breakdown the entire film um i love that hitchcock is very audacious in his kind of um willingness to to tackle a lot of ideas that were quite taboo at the time um obviously we've talked a lot about like the the, the queer subtext or just text of the film, but also these ideas of society and class and who kind of, you know, decides who lives and who dies and, you know, their, their justification for that, which, of course, like in a post-World War II sort of cinematic landscape, I think certainly rang true for the time, and it still does, unfortunately, now today. But um, I think that Hitchcock is really at his, you know, 
most uh this is kind of the beginning of what would be his like most iconic most well-known you know sort of chapter in his career it's a shame that this did not do well at all for whatever reasons maybe audiences were just not fine with this movie being about it so to speak but i think after this and you know he went on to make strangers on a train and then the next chapter of his career was just hit after hit after hit after hit um i think that a lot of that starts from this and this kind of turning of the page so that's kind of where i see this film as being this real pivot point for hitchcock moving from these spy espionage based sort of thrillers to being something a bit more audacious and racy and sort of sexy in a way being about murder and and you know secrets and mystery and all of that and i think that that's certainly uh, true for what would be the remainder of hitchcock's career so out of out of five out of five ropes out of five ropes uh, this one is a four out of five ropes for me um, it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock films but it is certainly one that I feel I would recommend to most people because uh, like I said I think it still plays incredibly well um, but uh, it's you know the, he, like I said he went on to make some of the greatest films of the 20th century after this so this just kind of by trial of elimination is a bit farther back for me but it's still a terrific movie so yeah four and a half or four out of five ropes excuse me Sure. How, Alicia, how are you feeling out of five ropes on rope? Uh, I'm going to do four ropes and one glove. <laughs> it's sort of like a four and a half ropes. Um, it's definitely, you know, you wouldn't say it's one of Hitchcock's best films because he has so many great movies that he made throughout his career, but definitely an interesting film to watch and one that I hope more people will continue to discover over the years. Yeah, this one. Uh, I mean, this one is up in in my in my upper half of Hitchcock films. Uh, I'm going four out of five uh, as well. Um, I think this movie is very. Uh, it's very fun. It's delicious. It's uh, it's very just like um, you know, for for something to just be able, you know, it's an hour and twenty minutes. I mean, it just it zings by, and it's just so fun. Uh, watching uh these character interactions. These uh some of my more uh favorite performances uh in uh, some of the Hitchcock films that we've talked about this uh month. And uh, and just uh, yeah, I I really enjoy the way that it unfolds. It's a very nice, uh, it's a n very nice melding of of uh, Hitchcock and not only his uh, stylistic prowess, but then also um, some of the stories that he's interested in telling in characters that he likes to explore. So like I I know uh, Garrett has said like Rear Window is his like show somebody Hitchcock. If I'm gonna try to introduce somebody to Hitchcock, I'm probably gonna go with this one just because. One, it is shorter, but it also is still very much a very uh, fun exercise in a kind of Hitchcock style uh, for me. Um, if you guys go on TikTok, there's these two guys, uh, Aaron and Jake, and they do um, this series together called The Mean Gaze. And in, and they're so good at playing these characters that it like makes me mad when I oh, watch I these videos. I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking it, about. <laughs> it, so is it's it's literally just two Brandons. Like that's what their their whole series is. If you guys go on TikTok, just just watch that in mind, thinking they're they're just both Brandon. Unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, Garrett, Garrett, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah I, I love, love that, that a lot of this, this uh, like the, the, the crime that they commit in this is like discovered because of like how the furniture is placed. And, like, you know, these like, it's, like yeah, it would, it would take somebody like that to, to kind of <laughs> sniff that out, so to speak. Uh, so funny. But uh, let's see what other movies we were uh, thinking about while we were discussing Rope.
everybody here on Spectre Cinema Club, we like to conclude our conversations by playing movie math. Uh, Alicia, you're new around these parts, so uh, Devon and I can go ahead and uh, kick it off here. But it's pretty simple. You just have to take some uh, films that remind you of the movie that we discussed today and put it in some sort of mathematic equation. You know, this movie plus this movie equals rope. So, uh, Devon, go ahead and uh, start us off here. Alrighty, so um, I definitely have um, a couple of, uh, I mean, I think all these films have been in different equations in the past, you know, we've done so many episodes, we're starting to repeat our elements here, <laughs> um, but um, for me, so I have, uh, in parentheses, I have uh, Tragedy Girls, which we've covered on the pod, and then we just had the director uh, on last week, um, at Tragedy Girls in the fact that, you know, you have these two where so much of the thing that they're doing is you know they they the, part of the plot of the movie is they they need the recognition that like you know they are this new serial killer that they're trying to track down but nobody wants to believe that's a serial killer they keep coming up with all the excuses and they're like no 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 we we want you to know please um so like kind of in that angle and you know um, the the you know speculation on their friendship as well on you know uh, are they are they just friends or are they not just friends um, divided by thoroughbreds which is a film that I used to get these two mixed up um, they came out around similar times and um, it kind of I so I have a tragedy girls divided by thoroughbreds because in this one it's um you know a, a lot more contained and like it's like kind of more the struggle of doing this but then instead of them wanting to carry out the murder themselves they're like oh we'll get somebody of a lower class to do it for us and it's kind of that commentary and how uh that changes uh the the friendship so i have uh tragedy girls divide by thoroughbreds in parentheses uh multiplied by clue um the the 1980s version um just uh, in the style of this party uh in the style of the dialogue just like so many of the interactions i kind of give clues so i'm i'm assuming clue um definitely um look to rope as far as like you know the the tone of this uh dinner party um so to speak uh, so yeah so i have clue uh multiplied by tragedy girls divided by thoroughbreds yeah, you and I uh, had pretty similar equations as far as like the the structure of our equations. Uh, but for mine, I had a Telltale Heart. Uh, it's kind of cheating. It's not technically uh, they have adapted it, but I'm referring to like the post story of somebody, you know, having this murder, but you know, just burying it right underneath your feet or having it kind of in in, in plain view. Uh, divided by the 1959 film Compulsion. Uh, uh, the Richard Fleischer movie, which is not quite the same film, but is also about these two men who may or may not be in a relationship <laughs> who, like, conspire to uh, commit this crime, this, you know, quote-unquote perfect crime. Uh, I've got that in parentheses, uh, multi multiplied by Strangers on a Train, which is, of course, the movie that we've uh, already discussed here and the movie that Hitchcock made right after this. Also another film that is just brimming with queer subtext, but is also about these um, two people who are conspiring. One of them is way more into it than the other one is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and kind hey, of the, more the into it. And attention <laughs> that uh, uh, comes, comes out, out of that. that. So yeah, Telltale Heart divided by compulsion multiplied by strangers on a train. Uh, Alicia, what do you got? Yeah, yours are good. Um, I was thinking Lifeboat, the you know, Hitchcock film that I mentioned set mm -hmm. aboard a life raft, um, plus Rear Window because it's another Hitchcock film that shows just how skilled he was at making the audience complicit in what's happening on the screen and making you feel like you're part of what's going on and it's claustrophobic again. Uh, divided by Birdman, because I think Birdman is a great example of the one take and how, uh, how interestingly it can be used. It can be used for both thrillers, as we've seen here, and for more like drama, comedy, fantasy, whatever you want to call 
Birdman, uh, but that's one of my favorite examples of a one-take movie. So there you go. I have Lifeboat plus Rear Window divided by Birdman. Birdman, apparently <laughs> one broke. of Martin Scorsese's uh, preferred movies. You see that he oh, preferred go. that to Good, the Bad, and the Ugly? That was crazy. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I love that. Love, love Scorsese. Scorsese. Birdman yes. Hive. We're alive. We have Marty Scorsese. You guys can't tell us anything. He's anymore. on the team. He's on the, He's team. On the team. That's, That's a, a good get. get. That's a good get. <laughs> Man, but uh, thank you so much, Alicia, for coming on and closing out Hitchcock Month with us. Uh, can you go ahead and tell the people where they can find you and uh, about your books? Yeah, well, thank you both for having me on. It's been a pleasure to speak and see you both again after so long. Um, you can see me on Turner Classic Movies on Sundays and Tuesdays. Uh, you can also read my three books about women in film, Backwards and in Heels, The Female Gaze and Girls on Film. And I'm not on social media, so anymore. <laughs> Bless. Good uh, for you. (laughs) Yeah, I've gone gone back old school. We'll have all the Amazon links for for the books in the the description below for you. Um, Garrett, what are you working on right now? Yes, I'm a proud owner of Alicia's book, so please, if you're a film lover, (laughs) a film historian, uh, just uh, overall uh, good person, you should be buying these books and uh, supporting uh, all the wonderful work that she does. Uh, But if you want to support some of my work that's (laughs) not as impressive, uh, you can uh, follow me over on uh, TikTok or Twitter or Letterboxd at Garrett McDowell. Um, I also have another podcast where we talk all things Star Wars called uh, Scum and Villainy, uh, and we've got uh, new episodes every single Thursday. You can uh, find me on all the usual social media platforms at underscore daddy disco. Um, I also have uh, one of Alicia's books. I have backwards and heels that made me just think of a hilarious story. Um, I lent it to a gal that I was dating at one point and then we and then we weren't dating and she had to like, you know, give me some stuff back. And then like she like hands me a box and I like look in it and I go, hey, uh, do, do you got that book? <laughs> and, she, <laughs> I love that. and she was like yeah i have the book and like went back and got it so i said so i got my copy back nice. thank nice. you thank you i appreciate oh, that yeah. it's the uh, most important thing to get back from an ex that's right that's right <laughs> um but uh that is ending one month uh and so kicking off a new theme next month uh very excited to hop into possession films uh we're gonna let the the dark lord take us uh as uh we uh celebrate 50 years of the exorcist i am super duper stoked for that one but i'll go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the specter cinema club new episodes drop every tuesday subscribe to not miss a thing you can follow us on social media at specter cinema on twitter instagram and tiktok and if you're listening on spotify or apple Podcasts, leave us five stars a nice little review we appreciate you but until next time guys stay lifted <laughs>